see the really rotten, broken parts. Um, and I think that the past hundred days have been an education, um, not necessarily for Donald Trump, but for all of us and certainly for our allies. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined here by Susan Hennessy, who is a fellow in national security and governance studies at Brookings and is also managing editor of the Lawfare blog. She also teaches at Georgetown, I think, because she just ran in here from Georgetown. I did. I just sprinted. Me and Sebastian Gorka, we both had to get out of there really fast. Love that (laughs) Sebastian Gorka. What a man's man he is. And also joining us in Washington is Julie Smith, who is heading up FP's Shadow Government blog with Colin Call and Derek Chalet. She is also Senior Fellow and Director of the Strategy and Statecraft Program at the Center for a New American Security. And calling in from Palo Alto is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Actually, all kind of obscure history. (laughs) Um, The further back you go, the less people know whether you're making it up or not. I know you mean it as a compliment. I do mean it as a compliment, and our listeners love it. Um, we're gonna. There's a whole drinking game where you know people say <laughs> Millard Fillmore, and anyway, we're we're gonna start selling the highly coveted ER mug soon. So get them for free while you still can. Send us your wittiest ideas or comments or recently videos. I got a poster today. You know, pictures of your ER mug tattoo would go a long way, I think, uh, and you'll get them before they go on the market. Email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, from our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. There's a lot of serious stuff I want to talk about, but first, let's just go back to Sebastian Gorka. What was going on? He he, he was at Georgetown... It, like you, did you walk out on your class? Why did he walk out on his group? Uh, apparently, the students got tough with him. So I wasn't—I was not there. I was—I uh, was being questioned by my own students. But um, I found out from a, a foreign policy reporter's Twitter uh, live tweeting, Jenna McLaughlin's live tweet, that apparently somebody asked him some tough questions about whether or not they'd unmasked any Americans in the Trump administration, and and he just. Stood up and walked right out of there. Um, I gotta say, if you can't handle a Georgetown sophomore, how are you gonna handle you're in Putin? trouble? <laughs> you know? Ah, uh, but that's it exactly, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that is it exactly. Oh, it's 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 crazy. Okay, so let's let's go to the news. I want to at at some point get to the first hundred days of Donald Trump's foreign policy because. We should really give out some awards of some sort for all of the big successes there. Um, but but let's talk about the news of the weekend, the French elections. OK, here's my, here's my, my take. Uh, the French elections, uh, you know, caused a lot of hubbub in the news because there was all this fear of Marine Le Pen. And then she came in second. Macron won. And now there's no chance she's going to win. And so we don't have to pay any attention. No, (laughs) wrong, wrong. Alert. (laughs) Oh, I set myself up. So, okay, go ahead, Julie. Well, look, her chances don't look great Um, in all the polls they did to date with just Macron facing off with Le Pen. He beats her by a wide margin, you know, upwards of 
60 some percent uh, to her below 20. The same um, margin that Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump by. Right? <laughs> right, there you go. Yeah. But uh, look, he's he's a neophyte. He's new. He's not a standard politician. Um, and a lot can happen in a couple of weeks. The uh, election will be decided on May 7th. And uh, you never know if there's a black swan, some external event. Um, I just think anybody who witnessed Brexit and our own election should be cautious about taking bets. I guess I would be pretty confident saying he'll pull it off, but I think it's it's risky to say with certainty that he will win. Corey? I agree with Julie. I think um, we shouldn't underestimate the potential for Russian malevolent interference in the election. And now that that Marine Le Pen has made it into the second round. They can concentrate all of their attention on Macron. I saw news coverage this morning that the Russians are already trying to, that they've caught Russian efforts three times trying to get into Macron's headquarters IT systems. The other thing is, I don't think the fact that he may win handily should cause us to underestimate the real genuine alarm that something like 9 million people voted for Marine Le Pen and that the distribution of rural versus urban votes suggests to me that that in the United States, as in France, that globalization and and immigration, which are seen as benefits by people in urban centers, are not seen in the same way by people in the outlying rural areas. What an excellent point, Corey. I, I would like to thank you, David. Uh, no, I you know this is a point that's really sort of been sort of I don't know bubbling around in my head for the past few days um, because it seems to me that one of the things that we keep talking about on this show in the wake of elections is what the divides are and you know there's there's the haves and the have-nots and and we we talk about Democrats and Republicans or the right wing and the left wing but in all of these elections the real divide is as a global trend. Cities versus hinterlands. In the Turkish election, Istanbul and Ankara voted against, the rest of the country for. Even in the Russian elections, Moscow votes against Putin, the rest of the country for. In the Brexit elections, London votes against, the, uh, the hinterlands vote for. In the Trump election, you know, the biggest cities in the United States voted against Trump, the rest of the country for. And there's something going on here. And I think Corey puts her puts her finger on some of it. Do you, I mean, Susan, as you sort of look at this trend, is that something that uh, you, you think there's more there uh, that is worthy of some study? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, clearly, I, I don't know that this is the first time we've seen those kinds of divisions. Um, uh, I do think that we are experiencing them more, uh, in part because we've just become more polarized in general. I think there there's an important lesson to be learned, which is uh, the tendencies of, you know, those left coast or, or coastal urban elites to ignore. That's Corey. Exactly. Corey is uh, the left coast. Exactly. Uh, you know, to, to ignore <laughs> the concerns of these populations. They do so at their peril, especially in an era of sort of heightened politicization. That said, I, I think there is a desire to want to draw lots and lots of parallels between the U.S. election and uh, and the French election. Certainly the lesson that a lot can change in, I don't know, 11 days uh, is is an important lesson to take. That said, there are some... If James Comey gets on a plane <laughs> and flies to France, <laughs> then we start to worry. 
Uh, yeah, but th- there are really important differences as well. One is that he is, you know, a significant decree- degree uh, more ahead of uh, of Le Pen than uh, than Hillary Clinton ever was of Donald Trump. The other is the way that um, French mainstream con- conservatives are responding he- uh, in this case. Uh, they're all responding by endorsing the responsible left candidate, whereas uh, right in order to fend off this sort of right wing nut, we did not see that in the United States. Um, and so I, I think we were in a, a different and more perilous situation because we didn't see that kind of um, uh, responsibility and, frankly, patriotism from mainstream party leaders in advance of our own election. Well, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I don't think the left wing can the, 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 the center right and the center left parties finished third and fifth. First time in post-war history yeah. that they were out of the money. But uh, Melanchon, who is the left-wing candidate, I don't think has actually endorsed Macron yet. Not has yet. He? No, not yet. He's holding out hope that somehow well, but, be but breaking so, news. For well, him. and you know, I think part of it is that the far left and the far right are actually united on they, a few things. That's right? exactly right. Yeah, and then one of them is they don't like the EU, um, and. You know, Macron, who is 39 years old, and although we say he's a neophyte, he was the finance minister of true, France. That's true. something significant. But politically, he doesn't right. have much of a— but, 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 you know, before that, he wasn't just a banker. He was a banker for Rothschild. You know, he was, a, you know, he was right at the center of the favorite conspiracy of the nut job right for 175 years. Um, and you can just imagine what Le Pen— and Putin and a lot of the people who are very, very wary of elites are going to make of that, right? Yeah. I mean, he's trying very hard to portray himself as something other than the establishment. Um, But the reality is that he's, in fact, been part of the establishment. And the hard part for him, if he wins, is really finding his way between his campaign pledges of, you know, being a kind of pro-market reform guy, plus someone that supports all the social services that exist inside France and trying to find that perfect third way is going to be enormously challenging for him. And I think people are going to be watching closely to see if he can actually come up with a viable reform plan, despite the fact that his predecessor, assuming he wins, Hollande, has tried to do just that and has failed, by the way, quite miserably. But but there is a kind of a delicious irony in all of this. And basically, I live on delicious ironies. That's my main <laughs> food source. Um, and, and the delicious irony in all of this is that Vladimir Putin, would-be master of the universe, has been seeking to undermine the Atlantic Alliance for some time. And one of the brilliant moves that he thought he would make in this regard is supporting Donald Trump. Uh, orange troll president of the United States uh, in the hopes that Trump and the people around him's opposition to multilateralism and the EU and things like NATO would ultimately benefit the Putin agenda. But Trump is so odious, so awful, so stupid, so unqualified that it seems to be doing something that the Europeans haven't been able to do for the past 75 years, and that's actually unifying them. 
and you've had the Dutch election, uh, and and now you've got this French election, which looks like it's going to go in a certain way, and that may well help us in the German election. We dodged a bullet in the Austrian election, and 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 you know I talk to Europeans about this, and they go, no, Trump is a factor. They say we don't want to be as stupid as you are, and so it could be that Putin, big Trump play actually undermines the play that he was even more important to him with regard to the EU. What do you think, Corey? I am surprised at the number of Europeans who have made that exact argument to me as well, David, that watching the results of the American election caused many Europeans to be much more serious about the undertaking facing them and may have inoculated them against casting protest votes against the establishment or uh, indulging themselves that it doesn't make a difference who runs the government. Well, you know, first of all, one of the things that I saw, and again, you know, I saw this on Twitter, so it's quite conceivably not true. The numbers may have been inverted, but it was something like that the turnout in the French election was like 27 percent. You know that it were you know it, it, this may have just been part of it, but the turnout was quite low, and so that is interesting. There's a sort of level of apathy there, but let's set all that aside. Let's just say that Le Pen picks up a bunch of left wing votes and so forth, and that she ends up with thirty to forty percent of the vote, and she loses. But there's still like you know in the U.S. there's forty percent of Americans that support Trump. Uh, and a recent poll showed that 98 percent of the people who voted for Trump still support Trump. So clearly the news, facts, government performance have no impact on them. Should we be concerned, Susan, that there seems to be a significant submajority in, 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 in these developed countries of people who are just against the institutions, fed up, Contra to you know traditional parties, uh, and and willing to just sort of, you know, make the protest vote or vote for the outlandish candidate, almost seemingly without without regard for any of the things that usually go into weighing a vote. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that there is uh, sort of an, an underlying phenomenon here uh, that is is beyond sort of the, you know, partisanship is a hell of a drug, and apparently it's a drug that's getting stronger and stronger. Um, and that's that there is an, an underlying crisis of civics education that is clearly existing in a number of different uh, uh, countries that we care a great deal about. And so I do think that there's, there's a linkage between very, very low and persistent low uh, voter turnout and voter participation and uh, immovable approval ratings among particular constituents. Um, and that's it's sort of it's this phenomenon of uh, not being affected by reality, by the news, by performance, by sort of by the world as it exists, instead sort of uh, just being a, a walking confirmation bias at all times. Uh, that that feature of, of U.S. society and, and, and American uh, and uh, uh, French society and British society that, that we're seeing, uh, that is the precise vulnerability that things like Russian hacking campaigns are, are targeted at. Um, and those are much deeper questions about how exactly we get people's media literacy and sort of a, a basic civic engagement up in a way that they they care about what actually happens as opposed to just whether or not they voted for the person who happens to be doing it. So let me go one more round of questions before we get on to Trump's first 100 days. But 
one of you mentioned, and I don't I think it was Julie, maybe it was Corey, but one of you mentioned that there have been a number of reports now of the Russians trying to hack into what's going on in France. And the Russians have been hacking in France. And frankly, I've noticed it myself. You know, it's it's very interesting. You know, you attack Trump about something, healthcare, and you don't get a lot of bots and things. You know, you attack Trump on being an anti-Semite and you get all the anti-Semite anti-Semite bots. But on some of the issues that are the Russian issues, all of a sudden all these little Twitter bots come out of the woodwork and go after you. And this weekend I said a couple of things about this election and all of a sudden I was getting these kind of Slavically badly translated tweets, uh, you know, com- coming at me. But we, we're, we're starting, I think, to accept that this is a part of elections. And I find this really weird. I mean, we just sort of expect that over the next 11 days, the Russians are going to come in with a bunch of bots and some hacks and some other kind of things and meddle in the French election. And it will have no consequence in terms of major foreign policy uh, you know, ramifications for, for the Russians. It's kind of an un, unexpected twist in global affairs. Eh? I mean, yeah, uh, most definitely. I mean, it, we have become totally accustomed to this now in a very short period of time. Uh, people are now talking about what will happen in the German election uh, this fall and, you know, what we can expect. And, um, you know, people talk about this in Congress and the press just as a part of everyday campaigning, that the Russians will be there, that they'll turn their bots on and turn their attention via social social media and do what they can to undermine any candidate they think will oppose something that might serve their interests. Uh, and without consequence, sadly, the message for Putin is you can carry on with this and no one will really challenge you in any significant way. The U.S. has done next to nothing in response to what happened in our election. And it doesn't appear that the French really have taken it that seriously. I've seen one or two stories in the French press uh, about what Macron experienced even before uh, the, the election took place. Um, but other than that, a lot of kind of shrug shoulders, and this is the way the world works now, sadly. Yeah, I mean, clearly uh, our deterrence policy in this area is just a, it's an abject failure um, and and was one of the reasons why it was so troubling to see Trump move so quickly to undermine some of those steps that Obama had put in place to at least try and do something. Uh, and, and, you know, lots of people predicting that we were going to see this kind of, you know, aggressive action against the French elections, the German elections and others. Uh you know, I think the the broader problem here is that we have politicians in these countries that are actually accepting and, and welcoming this kind of activity. Um, so they themselves are making it politically acceptable because when Donald Trump stands up and says, I love WikiLeaks and, and you know, Mike Pompeo, who, who later, you know, has a, has a great conversion on the issue, uh, you know, sharing, uh, sharing WikiLeaks materials and, and a party sort of being willing to capitalize on what's released and and play along. We see the same thing in the French elections. That makes it incredibly difficult for a nation to have a credible deterrence policy because you you really have to be united in what is unacceptable. The fact that this kind of foreign meddling in elections 
is not something that's universally acceptable. The, the, the lift moving forward to actually stop it um, against other countries where the stakes are, are as high and they are uh, potentially more vulnerable, at least on the cybersecurity dimensions, potentially even vulnerable to things like actually changing vote counts. Um, I, I just think we've entered an enormously perilous time here, uh, almost entirely unarmed with, with ways to defend against we, it. We, but I think we've gone further. I think we've entered this enormously perilous time unarmed with thoughts about how we should defend it. I don't think we have doctrines. I don't think we have thought this stuff through. I, I, I mean, I hate to stop here to make a plug for my book, The Great Questions of Tomorrow, which happens to be sitting there in it front is. of Susan and Julie. Uh, sorry, Corey. We'll get you one really soon. Uh, or you, Thank you, like, David. You, or you, like our listeners, could order it on Amazon where it's available. What? No, no, no. I'll send you one. I'll send you one. But listeners, I will not send you one. You will have to order it. And if all 100,000 of our listeners. Yeah. I'll order it just out of gratitude that David let me out of the well. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming up from the well. But um, uh, the, I can't even believe that became a thing. You know, there's t- Twitter traffic on <laughs> free Corey from the well. And people are like running pictures of mugs, you know, just because of a lousy, lousy connection. One Anyway, that, that you know, but no, by all means, everybody go order the book. You really, I mean, shouldn't be listening to this podcast and not be reading the book. But one of the points is, we're just in the beginning stages of all of this, right? And, you know, I was actually having a cl- my class from Columbia was down here. Derek Chalet, you know, uh, was just in, 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 in at the class. And we were talking about bots and we were saying, you know, now we have these sort of, you know, outbreaks of bots and attacks and stuff. But it's very easy to imagine a point in the not too distant future when there are smarter bots or AI driven bots by the millions going after other bots. And you don't know what in the conversation you're getting on social media is a human or a bot. And that in terms of your deterrence strategy, one could completely flood the social media of another country. And this is, you know, an unexpected, unintended consequence of the democratizing effects that the Internet has had on the media, because everybody has an in. Everybody is a window to the public dialogue. Everybody is a window to the public discourse. You know, 20 years ago, you would have had to get to NBC or get to The New York Times or do something to have a big, broad effect. And now you can, you know, you can unleash a million bots onto Twitter and have an effect or at least create the appearance of a shift in public dialogue. Look, I think this um, this opens a question you know, that the United States has been hesitant to go down, and that's um, our, our sacred commitment to anonymity online in all forms and the ways in which that has serious uh, security consequences, um, uh, sort of on, on pure cybersecurity, um, but also has real consequences as more and more of important political discussions move but to the we, online space. Didn't we just blow this up to some extent last week? Wasn't there just a vote on the Hill? where we're now starting to move towards taking away privacy rights. Meaning the, give, the vote that the yeah. that, uh, Internet service providers can sell your search right. history now? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's uh, that that struck me as um, a sort of strange signaling uh, from Congress in terms of how they value these, uh, these particular issues, although I don't um, – it essentially prevented a rule that hadn't yet taken effect from taking effect. Uh, you know, that said, there are – 
technical mitigations here. You can require someone to give you their phone number and verify it through your phone. Um, I don't. I actually have turned off notifications if somebody has not verified through a phone or email. Like you're yelling into a void. Whatever you're saying to me, that surely excludes please, some please people. Please don't send your attacks on Susan to us. <laughs> Just root him to David. He's much tougher, an alpha male in the model of Sebastian Gorka, and wow. so he can take. Wow. Okay, I am going to defend David's honor there. Wow. That's an outrage. That is that is so hurtful. I'm taking the tears, book back tears and, coming. Yeah, just Susan. kidding. He is a real alpha male in the model of John uh, Wayne. This okay. John Wayne. Yeah, right. How about but, he's a real three-dimensional human being? Yeah. Thank you, Corey. And about being the only man on his own podcast. I resent <laughs> being objectified. On my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, Corey, you're out in the middle of Silicon Valley. I say this is your fault. Okay. Yeah, I'm willing to take (laughs) responsibility for that. What I, You know what I would love to see? Um, And I'm hoping you address the issue of emergent norms in your book, David, because I would love to see (laughs) a day. (laughs) We're flipping through the index right now. I'm looking this up. The only norm I I know was on um, Cheers. I would love. I'm not going to laugh at that. I would love to wow, see. Wow, you actually emergence. knew what Cheers was. I'm <laughs> of course, of course. No, you, Julie, I know. Oh, but Corey, excuse me. I, I mean, Corey yeah. hasn't seen television since Howdy Doody. So that's basically true, other than watching St. Louis Cardinals baseball games. Oh, well, that's, um, yeah. On which I am current. So, but the point about emergent norms, David, I would actually love to see us begin to arm ourselves, not by expecting technology to solve this problem, but by expecting patterns of behavior, emerging best practices to solve the problem. My personal favorite would be that neither news organizations nor individuals use stolen property, treat stolen emails, treat cyber hacks just the way we would treat stolen diamonds so that you don't acknowledge their, you don't trade in them, you don't earn money off of them. We should be treating cyber theft the way we treat blood diamonds and blacklist their use. Corey has just taken a very strong stance against the Pentagon paper, Susan. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I actually think this is a really important point. I don't know that I have the answer, but I think Corey has hit on exactly what the issue is here. And that's that um, we've sort of, I think in some ways, sort of Sony was the Rubicon of all of this. And that, you know, we had a nation state attacking a U.S. company, organizational doxing, this mass dump of, of emails, and then the breathless coverage about who said what mean thing about Angelina Jolie. I mean, that's set the that set the rules how are we going to treat this stuff we're we're going to we're going to report on it and there's there's a defense right there's a defense to that of you know look there's all kinds of information that comes to the public and and you know if it's true and newsworthy then it then that's the, that's the standard of journalism and do we really want to get in a situation where journalists are are blinding themselves to important information that said, we're going to have to grapple with this stuff because the way the media covered, you know, the the, the hacked material in this election, uh, it exacerbated yeah. uh, what was a, a sort of a hostile attack on, on our democratic norms. You know, that's an interesting question, Julie, because it what it suggests is that one of the most pernicious consequences of WikiLeaks isn't 
the impact of what they released. It's, it's the, the cultural the, effect no, or the moral right. or ethical effect that it has on our society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, without question, there's no no pause whatsoever. The minute the Sony emails dropped, they ran with it. And it's been the case in every single other leak since we've seen. Uh, Trump, by the way, this today or yesterday, you know, was caught in another one of these lies. I think he's up to 500 lies now in under 100 days. And, that's uh, really, really impressive. But one of them where he said, I've never – I never heard of WikiLeaks <laughs> before this election cycle. And then, of course, people came up with you know, plenty of references by him to WikiLeaks prior to that. Um, I like uh, when he does it in the interview. Like the CNN like, reference? Yeah, 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 like the CNN reference was classic. Within a matter of seconds, he had just contradicted himself. Explain, and, because people may not know what you're referring to here. This is the AP Yeah, transcript. the AP interview talking about uh, acknowledging I, I hate CNN, I never watch CNN, then talking about how he was watching CNN and quoting a CNN segment, and they call him on it, I never said that, what are you talking about? And you can go up two lines in the interview and see exactly what he and said. And then he like, I mean, like, it just cope? goes on and on. Yeah, was, would you like a coat? Yeah, like yeah. His head just, uh, uh, yeah. It, My favorite line from the interview was, I just see the bigness of it all. The bigness of it all. It, I, I did like that. He's yeah. hilarious. I, you know, I just wondered about that. Do you think, Corey, you're going to be absented from this conversation, but Susan will hop right on it. Maybe Julie will as well. I just wonder if... The, Sex in the City and and Big and Sex in the City isn't in some way a reference to the Donald Trump gestalt of a certain kind of New Yorker. You know, I mean, you know, he's he's they're very similar actually, the character of Big. Although one is actually successful and charming and I think is right like Donald Trump is sort of a character of yeah, I I of have a hard character. time with no, that you one. Don't. You're just Mr. Too, Big is, no, the, yeah, it's not it's not working for no, me. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. I David, I know this will astonish you. So so be prepared to be like that I'm old seated. Memorex I'm advertisement <laughs> yeah, where the right. hair and the tie blow back. But um I actually do get that reference. And <laughs> wow. my goodness. And Woo. remember when he's moving out to Napa, and he leaves her a copy of, uh, he leaves her a record in case she's sad, but leaves her plane tickets in case he's sad. That does kind of seem Trumpian. Oh, my God. Wow. That I, is... I am the, you know... the memory on that episode. <laughs> and Corey, I salute you. That's uh, that's impressive. It's like, look, Corey doesn't watch much TV, but yeah, when she yeah, when she does, she man, she files it away. It's, uh, it's in the vault. Man, I'm so later. glad I showed up for this episode. But I literally... As you were speaking, yeah. I you envisioned of Big. thousands of ER listeners falling backwards, <laughs> mugs, mugs clattering to the floor. What have they become? Yeah. <laughs> you know, as they were all sitting there waiting for your reference to, you know, Little Dorrit or some, you know, Dickens thing. And <laughs> All right. Corey um, contains multitudes. She guys. really does. But but the most important thing there was she at least bought into a little of my reach analogy. All right. So we're coming up on 100 days of Trump. And I want to give you all an opportunity to do something you haven't done yet. And that is give me the one 
best thing that Trump has done in foreign policy in the past hundred days? In foreign policy, rats. <laughs> yeah. yeah, damn it. Sorry, um, sorry. You so, can't say Gorsuch. You can't. That, that oh, was, that was my was answer. Prepared. I was ready I was to make. Oh dear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I don't have a, a, a single sort of this is the good thing he has done. Um, I, to the extent these Syria strikes represent a shift in policy, um, uh, that would be welcome. That said, it pretty clearly did not. Um, so there's been some sort of false starts of things that might have seemed like a welcome change in, in policy, either on Taiwan or Syria elsewhere. At the end of the day, each has sort of been revealed to be a whole lot of nothing. Either he didn't understand what he was doing or or he changes his mind sort of in the next few days. Um, look, there are some bright spots, one of which is legitimate and one of which I'm like really, really reaching for. Um, so the one that's legitimate is, you know, like he has a he has a good national security team. Um, you know, it's very strong, you know, not just for Donald Trump, but as an objective statement, right, that, you know, Mattis and others, there are, uh, there is a lot of expertise there to the extent he's willing or able to draw on it, uh, which we have not seen. Uh, my more reaching I for mean, optimism... they did misplace the whole aircraft right. carrier. Who hasn't, it, you know? Minor, minor <laughs> detail. That's... Right, and, and look, in reaching for, for an optimistic explanation, and I think you know how difficult this is for me, I'm, David. No, I really, this um, is one of the things I'm enjoying the most about this look, afternoon. Uh, there is um, something, and this is not about foreign policy, but it's my, um, my like, I'm glad the past hundred days have happened, and that's um, the diagnosis effect that uh, when you uh, you know whenever a doctor wants to wants to look at your heart uh, you know they put you under a stress test and they make you work all your little parts because that's the only way you see the really rotten broken parts um, and I think that the past hundred days have been an education um, not necessarily for Donald Trump but for all of us and certainly for our allies on the places in which our foreign and domestic policy, um, and indeed some of the structure of the U.S. system and the international system, um, there are real weak points to that. Uh, The question is what exactly we're going to do about them now. The best thing, Julie... Boy, this is this is brutal. Um, I I can't even say a top national security team. I mean, I really have trouble with that. I mean, there are a couple shining stars, people that I know and respect, people I don't know and I respect. Um, but there, first of all, the, we don't even have where where are the assistant secretaries? I think if we got the assistant secretaries, undersecretaries, and deputy assistant secretaries, I'd find some great shining stars in that group if they ever arrive on the scene. But I don't count Tillerson as a strong I mean he's no. really disappointed. And I wanted I wanted to like Tillerson and have faith in Tillerson and I just I can't see it. Um, for me, I guess it's a sense that maybe in some small way when he sits down with leaders We've seen him, at least in that moment, I think it changes a few hours later, he moderates his positions. And we've seen that in countless one-on-one meetings where they come out and do the press avail. And it sounds okay. It's not breaking China. It's not insulting someone to their face. Although often the tweet will follow where he will insult them personally, as he did with Merkel. Um, But it seems to me like, I guess the most positive thing is when he sits down 
down and he's sitting across the table from foreign counterpart X, there's uh, an inclination we've heard on a few occasions to listen, which frankly I didn't expect, and that he does acknowledge sometimes in the meeting that he got something wrong. Again, looking at the Merkel meeting where he said, we're going to do a trade deal with you, with you, with you. And how many times did she have to say, that's not possible. You have to do it through the EU. And finally, supposedly, according to people who were in the meeting, he said, OK, I, get, I understand now I can't do it with Germany. I've got to do it with the EU. Whether or not that sticks and he understands that six months from now, you know, remains to be seen. But there does appear to But he did say he has great chemistry with great her. Great chemistry. I saw that line, too. This I is what George H.W. Bush would down. call the soft bigotry of low expectations. Ah. <laughs> anyway, so that's well, about but, as but, good as well, I can. Look, I'm just, yeah. You so guys were the prelude, but I know Corey, a loyal member of the Republican Party, has, you know, at Hoover, which is probably totally dedicated to supporting the Trump administration right now, probably has a whole list of great things. Right, Corey? Well, I do have at least one really important one. I believe President Trump is going to win the Iraq War, and it is uh, eight years overdue to do so. I I think the change in policy to provide the troops that are needed to help the Iraqis to move our forces into combat and combat support roles, to s- tighten up the clock that has been ticking, President Obama's strategy for defeating ISIS, because it had such a long expanse of time, it totally undervalued the devastating effects of the refugee crisis, of the polarization of politics in the countries where ISIS uh, is living. The Trump administration, and, and I think Secretary Mattis deserves a lot of the credit for this, and probably because watching so much of Iraq fall to ISIS after it had been clawed back into security by American blood during the surge in from 2006 to 2010. I actually think they're going to win the Iraq war, and that's really important. Wasn't most of the heavy lifting around Mosul done by the Obama administration? No. There you have it. It's not. I mean, that's not the view of some of the people I know in the Obama administration. But the you know, heavy the, lifting around Mosul was done by the Iraqis. And well, and I understand. They but wanted I'm t- more support from us than we were willing to give them. And I do think that's an important change that the Trump administration made, which is to stop giving allies just enough support so that they don't lose. To actually provide them enough support that they win. Okay, so let's let's play another round of this thing, and we're gonna. I'm going to keep stressing you guys out. Oh, my God. I have to come up with another one, David? <laughs> yeah. No, but this round is this. Name countries that are big winners and happy that Donald Trump is president of the United States. Oh, oh All the I'll Gulf. Start. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Julie, doggone it. No, go <laughs> for it. Go for it. Take she, it. Take well, you it and run with it, Corey. You guys want to say this in unison? Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I would have led For the with, win. I would have led with Russia. Oh. Oh, nice. Yeah. Because I, I still, even though, even with the decision that Exxon can't go ahead with their deal with Rosneft and uh, the newfound anti-Trump position because of their choice to punish the Syrians for chemical weapons use, I still think this administration is much too soft 
Uh, I'm sorry, one more thing they deserve credit for is uh, Tillerson's comments that sanctions on Russia won't end until uh, Crimea is returned to Ukrainian control. Even with those three very positive signs of seriousness about penalizing Russia's bad behavior, I still think we are at risk of them trying to pull off some kind of grand bargain with the Russians that that hurts American interests and hurts American allies. Well, I don't know if they're getting... So I think Russia's the big winner. The Gulf states are big winners. Authoritarians all over the world are big winners. Erdogan. Because this is an administration willing to avert its eyes from the domestic... Uh, governance issues of countries, provided that they will help us with what we want to get done. Yeah. Erdogan. I would totally agree with that. I would actually put China as the big winner. A little bit, Russia's had some kind of blowback here, either because there's either because you know Trump is a, is a, a less than useful idiot. I don't even know what the right sort of term for it be. He has a useless uh, idiot. <laughs> not totally useless though. Um, uh, you know, an unpredictable idiot, I guess. Um, you know, China look with with withdrawing from the TPP. Uh, you know, his uh, all of his sort of fiery rhetoric, rhetoric about China um, being withdrawn and a 10-minute conversation in which he, uh, you know, uh, learns all about the history of of China and and the Korean Peninsula and others um, uh, from, uh, you know, the Chinese president, that really if we look at whose influence is rising, that who at the end of four or God help us eight years is going to be in a much stronger (laughs) position than they would have been, uh, uh, not just with anyone else in the White House, I I think ultimately it, it might be China. That ends up being the big, big winners here. Julie, were you just committing ritual suicide? <laughs> I, I was. Sorry, there? when I hear the eight years, it's just it's a little it's a little hard. Um, just just to follow up Corey's point, I mean, I agree um, with both Susan and Corey here. It's a good list, and it's not hard to make the list. Um, but on Ukraine in particular, I mean, with the story that's breaking on FP about AID, the quote that said that you know upwards of sixty eight percent of the support for Ukraine specifically will be gone. Um, that's a huge win for Russia. Uh, and Well, they it, also got Monica Crowley. Well, what more can you ask for? Because, yeah. you know, she's now signed up to work for a, a Ukrainian oligarch who's pro-Putin. Exactly. Following her plagiarism. <laughs> Maybe we can get her to plagiarize your book. And wow. that's like, right, that'll be how you get that your ideas be, out there. Well, that's, that's, we'll uh, just send her a copy and then have would, a bot write it. That would be a kind, yeah. of, a kind of an honor, uh, akin to an honor, which, by the way, I think you have had. I have not, which is is being unfollowed by Sebastian. Gorka. No, not oh. unfollowed. Blocked. <laughs> blocked. Sorry, blocked. Blocked. I haven't been so honored yet. I got to get on that. I have. Uh, you know what? How do you get blocked by Sebastian Gorka? So I have never interacted with him online. Like I've never retweeted he him. Knew I've you were never at like, added today. him. So it must mean my theory is that he searches his own name uh, and then blocks anyone who like says a mean. Well, thing. you know That's what I right. think we should do. I think that all the listeners to the ER should start <laughs> tweeting at Sebastian Gorka. And we are going to announce Block right everybody. now a Blocked by Sebastian Gorka contest. And let's see who can get blocked most creatively by Sebastian Gorka. And with, This you know, is so fantastic, David. Yeah. You are now the head of a Twitter mob of ER fans. A Twitter mob of with ER With a mug in hand. Yeah, you but I want to see with... it on Twitter, folks. I want to see evidence that you go after him and that he blocks you. And the more of it, the better. And there will be a, anybody who gets blocked by Sebastian Gorka. The first 10 people to get blocked by Sebastian Gorka, Maria, 
they get mugs, okay? But I, there's you know, people I, logging like, on. We've right mentioned now. this on, on uh, Rational Security, which is the other podcast that I'm on. Um, this this like this idea of who could get blocked by Sebastian Gorka. And I just I feel the need to also state here that um, you know the first lady has an anti-cyberbullying plan right now, and you are not. Uh, I feel you know, terrible following about that. I haven't example. seen that plan. Maybe she I, should uh, start yeah. by sharing that plan yeah, with her but husband. When will exactly start? At home. She's busy yeah. on the ISIS plan. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go after or Melania the, next. Yeah. But by, everybody read the Vanity Fair piece on Melania if you really would like to uh, to savor all of that a, a little bit. Um, all right. We have three, two minutes left. I'm just going to let you indulge yourself. What's the worst thing about Trump foreign policy in the first 100 days? Trump. Tr- Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the truth. That's that's there's the... no plan. There's no there's no where's what's the Russia plan, the Syria plan, the North Korea plan. I mean, maybe when the Senate convenes heads over to the White House soon, they'll get that plan, at least on North Korea. But on everything else, I mean, you're left totally empty handed. It's always it's coming. We'll tell you soon. We have a secret plan. The reality is that he has given not a single foreign policy address. He has no idea what the plan or strategy is. And I think that's clear. And while even somebody like me may have rejoiced for about 30 seconds after the strikes in Syria, um, you know, we all came quickly to realize there was nothing behind that. There, it was just a reactionary, you know, shot. Yep, yep. Yeah, so um, I would say uh, the low point of a low uh, 100 days um, has got to be um, the immoral, inhumane, and un-American refugee policy um, and the executive Her order. Her the Absolutely. notion that the United States of America, you know, a city on a hill, uh, a value that uh, sort of these, these shared beliefs that, that we really uh, think the rest of the world should aspire to, um, that we would set ourselves to making life more difficult or painful for people who are already in hell, um, including children. That is something um, that, that Americans are going to have to confront and, um, and accept as part of our national history for years and years to come. Um, and those are, you know, the, the fact that uh, Ivanka now has her heart broken by, by uh, difficult images in Syria. Uh, I have not yet heard the administration uh, talk about its change of heart on refugee policy. So, uh, that to me remains kind of the, the 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 real worst part of all of this. Not to mention the millions of American children who go home every day fearing whether their parents are That's even right. going to be home Shameful. and are going to live in terror and uh, for perhaps the next uh, seven and a half years. Corey. Uh, I'm sorry, I lost track of the question. Susan's the worst. preparation the, the worst. on the immigrant. The, the oh, worst wait, of the I already... So let me just say Susan's got it exactly right. And her very moving description of the human costs of that ill-considered immigration ban, I, I found really moving and really important. I agree. And I think Julie also has it right. Because when you say, how do you grade Trump's foreign policy? There is no foreign policy. And I think Corey had it right. The worst thing about it is Trump himself. It's not the people around him who are promoted or demoted. And Susan also has it right because there have been some things that are un-American, unthinkable, and inhumane about uh, these these policies. 
uh, the empowerment of our rivals is also a problem. And that's why the ER will be here <laughs> week in and week out, full of lots to talk about uh, for the remainder of the Trump administration, which we hope, we pray, we get on our knees at the end of the 100 days and hope will not be four years <laughs> <laughs> or until the ground opens and swallows us, whatever comes which, which, first. Which, exactly, whichever but comes. You know what? Let me caution. Let me caution. Do not taunt the gods into smiting us, my <laughs> friends. Recall that the president of the United States is convening the entirety of I Congress know. I know. in secret to brief on North Korea. You, you, we want to get four years. Uh, yeah, well, there's... Because there. cataclysmic war could, could come sooner. Um. Uh, that's, I'm that happy. Oh my that's, god! That's fantastic. Crying. Thanks. Take your mug <laughs> under your desk. <laughs> fill it with wine <laughs> or cyanide. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just drink it down. And oh dear, uh, oh dear, um, oh dear. You know, if that cataclysm doesn't come between now and the next episode of the ER, which is a little later this week, then please join us then. Uh, and and please, in the interim, great questions of tomorrow, everybody. It gives you the long-term view. Read it quick, read it, read it quickly. Um, all right. This has been an excellent episode of the ER because Susan and Julie and Corey are excellent, and we all hope you are back soon. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I have been your host, uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us. <laughs>